Hey there, Pastor Allen here. Thank you so much for checking out this message from Praise Assembly. Our prayer is that it is meaningful, purposeful, and that the Holy Spirit speaks to you personally through it. If you find it helpful, would you consider supporting Praise Assembly? Just go out to our website at praise.church and hit the Give Now button in order to support this and other resources we are making available. This message is a part of a series called Idols, Honoring the Giver to Better Enjoy the Gifts, in which we are discussing what it looks like to make sure that God is first in our hearts. May the Holy Spirit use this in your life. Boy, it's good to see you here this morning. I am so very excited that we are soon to be done with this series. How many of you changed your phone from color to black and white this week per the challenge? Yeah, good, 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 good. How many of you had a really difficult, difficult time uh, doing your Wordle? Okay. <laughs> oh, man, I love it. You guys are awesome. Um, I, I, I don't know if I'm sad or I'm happy that this series is coming to an end. Today is the last of the messages in the series called Idols. And if you haven't been a part of it, all we're doing is talking about what modern day idolatry might look like. And as a result of that, then to be challenged in our own hearts to kind of make sure that we're rooting those things out. And I would say just absolutely ruthlessly to get those things out of our hearts. And I will say that, you know, I'm, I, I'm sad that it's kind of wrapping up. I'm also happy because the weirdest thing is that, like, this series, for whatever reason, has stirred up things in my own life. Uh, things that I thought were kind of dealt with that maybe we even haven't even talked about as part of this series. And, and then yet, as a part of that, it's like, whoa, wait, that's still there. And I would call it weird, but it's not weird because we live in a spiritual world and there are spiritual forces at work. And so as soon as we dive into something like this, it is going to stir up at least in me and hopefully in you as well. And maybe something that we haven't talked about, but maybe something that is in a place that it ought not be in your life. And so when that gets stirred up, I, I want you to first be encouraged because it wouldn't be getting stirred up unless the Lord had a plan to work with you on it to deal with it. And so be encouraged. Be encouraged that the Holy Spirit is at work inside of you and is not just letting you kind of sit back and be okay with something less than what God has for you. He wants good for us and his good gifts to be in the place that they are supposed to be in our lives that we might enjoy them best. And when they get out of order, that's when things get really, really weird. And so he wants to make sure that, 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 that all of those things have their right place. So, so, so it's not weird. It's real. And, and we do live in a spiritual world. In fact, I did want to mention that this week in particular, I am calling us as a church to a week of prayer. Um, mostly because, and I'll just be totally open with you, uh, since I have been the pastor of praise, I have never seen a time like right now where there is something spiritual happening around this church in the heavenlies. And I believe that 
it is a part of something that the Holy Spirit is doing and that the enemy is resisting. And I've never been the one to point out here and there and say that there's something spiritual here or there. What I have though seen is enough occurrences that I am starting to say, God's doing something first, and the enemy is resisting that. And so I'm asking you as the church prays to pray for this week. And here's how I'm going to ask you to do that. Every single day this week, we are going to post a specific prayer request on our prayer wall. And if you haven't yet requested access to the prayer wall, please do. Um, Just so you know, we don't just give access to everybody who requests it. We get requests, and if we don't know the person, we don't give them permission to view the prayer wall. We take it very seriously. Um, And so if we don't know who you are and you requested access, that's on you. Because if we don't know you exist, that's your decision, not ours. I'm just, just throwing that out there. But for everybody who requests access to the prayer wall today, we will approve it every time. Okay? And the reason we're doing that is because every week, every day this week, we are going to post a specific prayer request and ask the entire church to be praying over those things because I do believe there is something that is happening in the spiritual world and he has called us to participate in seeing some things break, seeing some things advance, seeing some breakthroughs, but also over protection, protection for the families in praise, protection for this church as a whole. And so I'm asking you to pray. Will you pray? Okay, thank you. Uh, So just go out to the prayer wall. Make sure to request access for that. And every every day this week, just log on, check it out, and you'll see that specific uh, prayer focus for us. It won't be like when I say praying for protection, I do not mean like the way somebody mentioned it to me as we were discussing this is it's not like a hedge of protection, like we're not moving. It's just the opposite. It's because we are pressing in and there are things that are happening because of what the Holy Spirit is doing, then the enemy is resisting. And so it's the type of protection that we're saying, hey, as we are pressing forward, we need protection as we go into it. And so that's the type of protection I'm asking for, even as we are asking for you to pray for breakthroughs. So thank you for doing that. Um, But this is something that I'm asking you to do all week long this coming week, and I believe God will respond to it. This series has been strong, though. It has been, uh, we've, we've dived into some things that some people are like, man, that's, that's not like a serious issue. And, or the phone specifically. We, though, believe that there are things that are simple things that can take places in our lives that maybe are not simple places or places where it shouldn't be. And so something as simple as a phone can be an issue. And again, this has stirred up in some people's lives, and I have heard about it. I know it has happened in my own. Things that we haven't even talked about that yet maybe are an issue for us. And so we did start by talking about cell phones, and we put out the challenge of no phone February, just helping us put our phone in its place. And then after we did the no phone February challenge, and a good chunk of praise participated along with us and did go black and white on their phones this week. Um, as soon as we did that, then we talked about the idol of money and we put out no money march challenge. And we did that totally as a joke. We said stuff that was totally ridiculous, like don't pay your bills in the month of March and use your neighbor's electricity in the month of March. Like it was totally just a joke, right? Like we threw it out. But then I've had people who have come to me, multiple people now who've said, we're going to do that. Not those specific things, but they said, 
Listen, I have some people who said to me, we are going to do no online shopping in March. And then I had somebody else who said, actually multiple people who said, we're not going to eat out at all in the month of March. Which I love that. I think that's fantastic. I love one of, one of those people said, yeah, and my son came to me and said, wait, what are we going to eat? <laughs> like, <laughs> but I love that. I love that. I mean, there's, because idolatry is insidious. And sometimes it's just really good for us to say, okay, let's just make sure that there are no issues here. Let's put a little check on our heart and make sure that everything is in its right place. And so we did No Money March, and then we talked about sex, and we threw out the challenge of No Action April, and no one has come to me and said, (laughs) we're going to do it, or we're going to not do it. Never mind. But you know what? Doing that is biblical. No, 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 no. (laughs) You misunderstand. I'm saying fasting sex for a time as a married couple is a biblical thing to do. Paul talks about it. He gives some very clear boundaries around it because he says this needs to be done in the right way and we need to make sure that it's healthy, but but that there may be times where you need to say, I'm going to set that aside for a bit because I just want to make sure that with the ridiculousness in our world that can creep in so subtly that I want to just make sure my heart's in the right place. And so it is. Read the passage for yourself at some point. But he does put some really clear boundaries around it. Last week we talked on Super Bowl Sunday about the idol of entertainment. That was not something we had planned. um, But I'm glad we did it. I'm glad we did it. And I'm glad we did it because it is the perfect example of how if we are not deliberate about making sure that things don't get out of line that we can enjoy the gifts that God has given us less than we do or should, right? And, and something that's good can become something that is instead bad. And I thought as I was approaching it, man, that is the dumbest idea ever to talk about entertainment as an idol on Super Bowl Sunday. And, and now I think, no, bigger than that is talking about the idol of America. America, with an apostrophe. Today's message is called, The Power and the Glory. Grab your Bibles, open them up to Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel chapter 14. We are going to read all of Ezekiel chapter 14. Anytime the pastor says we're going to dive into Ezekiel and read an entire chapter and doesn't cherry pick a verse or two out of it, know that you're in for a fun time. This is a hard passage, and it's, it's, it, but there's some important things for us to see in it. It's a passage about judgment. Um, I have said multiple times that election years are always difficult for pastors uh, for many reasons, but one of the reasons, the big ones, is that all of the rhetoric amps up in election years. This year will be no different. In Missouri, on the ballot in November, I think it's in November, will be a, a decision, it might be before that actually, but for whether or not to change Missouri's constitution to make it a constitutional right um, for an abortion. That will be happening this year. 
And so if you think that it's been hot under the collar in the past, it will be more so this year, guaranteed. Uh, And on top of that, you've got congressional elections and presidential elections and all of the things that go along with it. It's going to be wild, which, by the way, I do need to mention something real quick. We are going to be, starting this year in April, a polling place. So Truman Elementary was the polling place. Yeah, so if you don't know what that means, that means people are going to vote here. Um, So that is in, uh, starting in April, and then I think there's the, uh, uh, yep. (laughs) But that's just as an act of service to Truman Elementary because it was unsafe for them to open it up and have a bunch of people that they don't know walking through the school on a regular basis. And, and so we just offered and said, hey, we'll do that here. Um, I do want to ask you, though, as part of that, that as we're seeking the good of the city we're in, um, we want to make sure our community has a, just a, a, a positive voting experience here at Praise Assembly. Uh, part of the law in Missouri is that you are not allowed to campaign within 25 feet of the door. Okay. So, but as the pastor of praise, I'm going to ask you, if you attend praise, to extend that out to about like four and a half miles. Don't do it here. Okay? I love you. I love you. Don't do it here. Because as we invite our community and open this space up, there are going to be people who disagree with you, and I do not want to have to call the police on you. (laughs) Love you. Okay, cool. Um, Ezekiel 14, let's dive in. Ezekiel 14. Ezekiel is, the territory of, is in the territory of Babylon when he writes this. He's in a little village next to a little uh, uh, river that we're not entirely sure where it all is, but probably it's somewhere around 100 miles north of the city of Babylon. Okay, so, so uh, as part of that, they, he had been settled here along with probably about 10,000 other Jewish people um, who had been carried into exile. And anytime I talk about politics, I will tell you right now, here's where I'm going to go. Because if there is a pattern biblically that I see more than any other pattern of how we ought to interact with the governments and the nations of this world, it is as those who are in exile that our primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God first. And because of that, then as we interact here, we ought to interact as those who are in exile in a foreign land. This is what I see in scripture. And so I will always come back to this whenever I talk about politics or anything else. This will be, I will find a passage that speaks to our situation that comes from the position of being in exile. We are first and foremost a homeless people. We should feel homeless in political parties. We should. There should be, we should not be too comfortable in any place in particular. And so as part of that, even as we're thinking about all of these things, when we're leading up to Easter, we're going to launch into a series on the resurrection and what the implications are for our believers on the resurrection. I am so excited about that. It's going to be super good. But even as I was thinking about all of that, the resurrection promises to us a kingdom that is not this world. Okay, so, so as part of that, even as we dive into Ezekiel, we are coming at it from the perspective of people who are in exile. Okay, we are not at home. We are homeless. 
Now, in Ezekiel 14, Ezekiel had been started to be recognized as a prophet. By that I mean he is... Um, He'd kind of done some things that people are like, okay, he wouldn't do that if he's not a prophet. But then he also had some prophecies that had come to pass. And so as a result, he has growing cachet as a prophet in the Babylonian empire. People recognized him as a prophet, right? So, so that's where the perspective is coming from here in chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 1. We're reading all the way through the entire chapter. Here's what it says. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. So you can kind of feel this a little bit here because these guys are the leaders and as part of that they're coming before Ezekiel and they're really the specific language that's using is it's like they're sitting on their heels like they're sitting before him and partly as a like a place of submission to say what what does God want to speak to us because they recognize this is somebody who can speak for God or will speak for God when God gives him a prophetic word and so we're going to just wait and see what God would speak to us. And so you see that idea. Here's a guy who people recognize this is a prophet. Verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? I decided on the ESV today instead of the New Living Translation, probably for a few reasons in particular. Sometimes it can get a little tangled when you read from the ESV and you're like, not entirely sure what it's trying to say here. And then I have to do more explanation than I can application. And so most often I'll use New Living Translation. But on occasion I'll go to the ESV because of the way it says it and it's closer to the original language and, and it's important that it, we get the exact words or close to it. And this is one of them. When it says that they take the idols into their hearts, that means something in particular. And it, it, to them, at the very least, it meant that their idolatry was like our idolatry, right? So it's not an idol that they're setting on the mantle of their home, but it may be an idol that they are setting on the mantle of their heart, right? So maybe it's not visible, maybe it's not obvious, but it's there. Maybe nobody knows but them and God but it's there, right? And so that's what it says. But then it, it also goes a little deeper than that because when it says that they have taken their idol into their heart, it, it kind of, there's a verse in Psalm 66, verse 17 that talks about um, when our affections are turned towards iniquity in our hearts. The literal is, uh, it says, uh, I have cherished iniquity in my heart. And it says there, then the Lord would not listen to me. And so it seems to be, at least partly, when it's talking about them taking the idol into their heart, that it is finding a place of entrenchment in their heart. So this is not talking about a sin that maybe they're dealing with one time and repenting of. This is not talking about the sin that they maybe deal with multiple times and repent of and confess and try to get past, but then they stumble over it again. This is instead something that they are saying, this I will not give up. This is mine. You cannot have it. Right? This is an entrenching of idolatry within their hearts. And God says in both instances, in other words, should I I listen to them? And here he says, should I let them come and consult with me? No, that won't work. Verse 4. 
He says, therefore speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, anyone of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. So these people are apparently comfortable to bring their idolatry before God. They are okay with saying, I'm just going to bring this along with me and God won't mind. And God says, here's the problem. He specifically says that it's like their stumbling block of iniquity is hanging right in front of their face. What an interesting phrase. Ezekiel's the only one who uses this language anywhere in the Bible. He's the only one who calls the stumbling block, stumbling block of iniquity. He's the only one to say that. But then he's the only one, and here it is, and I think there's one other place, where he talks about it actually being hanging in front of their face. So it's not like this is, again, a stumbling block that they hit one time, trip over and go, bop, bop. Shouldn't put that there and then continue on their way and then hit it the next day. No, this is like a stumbling block that they hit and they go, why is that there? And they pick it up and they hang it right in front of their face instead. Now, what happens when you hang something in front of your face? You can't see a thing. You're blinded to reality. At the very least, you cannot see the face of God. It means something when the face of God shines upon us. And this thing is first blocking God and them from seeing him. But it's also blinding them to reality. And he says, this will not do, he says. And so then he, he continues on. But I wonder, what would be like that for us? Like, what would be an idolatry that we are okay with in the church? We've talked a lot about idolatry in our culture and the obvious idolatry that can maybe slip in and seep in. But what is the idolatry that we are 100% okay bringing it to church along with us and think everything's okay, and in reality it can blind us to the reality of, of, of the way things work in this world. To me, I think the most obvious idol like that is the idol of politics. I think it is the idol of patriotism. Patriotism. I, the language we use these days in our politics is religious language. We talk about who's going to save the country, who's going to save us, and it's not even subtle. People are going to politics to have their spiritual needs met, and it is deeply unhealthy. The world, in general has noticed this, that our politics in this country are broken. Our kids are being diagnosed with what's known as election anxiety disorder. As we approach an election, our kids in school are having their anxiety skyrocket. And at first they were like, what is going on here? And then they started noticing it was happening around the big elections. Because the things that the kids were hearing or seeing or on the way to school hearing over the radio were freaking them out. And so we look at it and we say, man, something is deeply broken here. 
Because politics does a poor job of meeting spiritual needs. But that will not stop politicians from trying to fill them. Because we've made this available to them. And it is a platform we have given them. And so then they will use that platform. Here's how I know it's been a, become a, an idolatry. One of the ways I know. One of the ways I know it can become an idolatry is. Jesus once said, you must love me more than you love your own parents. In fact, the type of difference that ought be is as if you loved me and hated your own parents. Right? That's the level of love you should have for me. That's the place that I should have in your hearts. Some people are like, boy, that's hard. But as soon as it comes to politics, that's the thing that will make them hate their own parents. So when politics takes that place that belongs to Jesus and separates you from family members, there is a problem. That is when it steps into idolatry. Politics is the great dividing factor that separates us and creates tribes of us today. It is one of the clear religions of our day. And I have seen families where children have hated their parents because of the political views. Man, that is idolatry. And here's the thing. It is deeply in the church. People now, number one factor for deciding what church to attend. What are the political ideologies the pastor has? More than theology. What do you believe about God and humanity is where do you stand politically? So we have made the church bow under politics. That's a problem. That is idolatry. And here's the thing. Nobody is turning the dial back down for you. This has got to be something we do. No one else can. Okay? Um, so there's a couple of ways you could do that. You could say, well, we shouldn't get involved in politics. But that's not biblical. Jeremiah 29, verse 7, tells us that if you are in exile... What ought you do? You ought to seek the good of the city that you are living in because the welfare of the city is your welfare, right? And so we have to engage in politics. We have to engage and participate in, according to our conscience, stepping out. We have to. If we don't, then it is not a matter of love and we aren't doing what we have been called to. We aren't seeking the good of our community that we live in. It benefits us to pull out, but it doesn't benefit others. Okay? So here's what C.S. Lewis said about politics. I'm going to share two quotes from him. Love these two quotes. Love the second one more than I love the first one, but they're both pretty good. Number one, he's talking about the various impulses we have. He says, it is a mistake to think that some of our impulses say mother love or patriotism. By mother love, we mean a mother's love for her children. Mother love or patriotism are good. And others, like sex or the fighting instinct, are bad. Well, there are situations in which it is the duty of a married man to encourage his sexual impulse and of a soldier to encourage the fighting instinct. 
There are also occasions on which a mother's love for her own children or a man's love for his own country have to be suppressed or they will lead to unfairness toward other people's children or other countries. Okay, so C.S. Lewis says, listen, all of these things inside of us just need to be in the proper place and they need to bow before some other greater good, right? Some other greater thing. Okay, so let me share the second quote because this is, Probably my favorite of C.S. Lewis. Listen to this. A sick society must think much about politics, as a sick man must think much about his digestion. Let me read that again. A sick society must think much about politics, as a sick man must think much about his digestion. To ignore the subject may be fatal cowardice for the one as for the other. But... If either come to regard it as the natural food of the mind, if either forgets that we think of such things only in order to be able to think of something else, then what was undertaken for the sake of health has become itself a new and deadly disease. I don't know if you got any of that. That was super good. What he is saying is, man, you can become obsessed with thinking about your own digestion. (laughs) Like, you can become obsessed in thinking about politics, and it's important to have the place to be able to think about these things when it is necessary. And we do live in a sick society. Our society is deeply sick, and we must engage, but only in order to be able to do something else. And our politics, otherwise, will cause more harm than good. So what's the main problem with humanity? What is the main problem with humanity? Here's a great way to diagnose. Has my political view gotten outside of where it should be within my own heart? Here's a good way to assess it. What is the main problem with humanity? How do you answer that question? Better, what is the main problem with America? How do you answer that question? If the answer is not sin, then something is wrong. If your base answer to that question is not first sin, then what will happen is we will look for a solution other than a savior. Right? So if we look or demonize or identify something else as the great evil of America then we will look for an answer other than the ultimate good, which is the only one who saves Jesus Christ. And so even as we look at the Gospels and we read in them and see that Jesus, like there were people who were looking for the Messiah, and yet Jesus is right in front of them. We're like, man, Jesus is right in front of you. And we're like, I can't believe you missed him. But we also can be looking for a Messiah other than Jesus. We can look in our country all the time for somebody to save us, from an evil that is not the ultimate evil. So if we move something else into that place, then what will happen is we will also move something else into the place of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And at our most basic level, the problem is sin. And because of that, the only answer is Jesus Christ. Okay? Good. Thank you, guys. Love you. Verse 6 of Ezekiel. Therefore say that it gets better, by the way. This passage is hard. Okay. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord your God, the Lord God, 
Repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, excuse me, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. And I will set my face against that man, and I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. And they shall bear their punishment. The punishment of the prophet and the punishment of the inquirer shall be alike. That the house of Israel may no more go astray from me, nor defile themselves any more with all their transgressions. But that they may be my people and I may be their God, declares the Lord. One of the hardest things for me this last election cycle was all of the prophecy that surrounded it. There was so much prophetic words going back and forth that ended up being totally wrong. And boy, the Bible is pretty clear about what you should do when there's a prophet who gives a word that isn't actually from God. And, and yet, we seem okay, or at least not we, I shouldn't say global we, we sometimes can feel okay, like merging these two things. Like it is okay for us to give these prophetic words and then for none of them to come to pass, and then we're okay with just saying, okay, well, let's move forward. Like, let's just keep, and then that person continues to give prophetic words around the political situation in our nation. And there is absolutely no shame about it. That's not what this passage says. This says, boy, if there is a problem here, what will end up happening is they'll end up being deceived. And listen, he says, I'm going to pass judgment on them as well. All of this, by the way, I believe, and not everybody agrees with me. I love you. I believe all of this is the same thing resulting from Romans chapter 1, being handed over to your idolatry. That the moment we take anything and put it in the place of God, that it is the judgment of the Lord to say, okay, fine, I am handing you over to that. And I believe a lot of the political everything, including in the church, is judgment from God as a result of the fact that we have put something else in his place. Said, okay, fine. Make politics your God. Here's the results. It gets really weird. And again, this dial is not turning back down. It will only keep cranking to the right in spite of the fact that it's already at 10, right? And that gets harder and harder and more dangerous and more scary. Verse 12, though, he continues, because I haven't actually gotten to the stuff I wanted to get to. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, listen to this, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it, and cut off from it man and beast. Um, I hold some views that are unpopular. One of those views is, I believe God judges nations. 
It's what I see in Scripture. And I've told people that before, and they disagree with me, and that's fine. That's why I think it's important for us to be involved in politics, that there are ramifications for making certain decisions. There's blessings, and there's the opposite of blessings, curses. And, and depending on how we live and the decisions we make, we either receive those blessings or we don't, and we end up with the, the curses. I don't fully understand it, but I believe that God judges nations. That's what I see in Scripture. In fact, I told someone one time that I believe the Civil War was a judgment on the United States because of slavery. It was. I'm not the only one to think that, by the way. So did Abraham Lincoln. He said the exact same thing, that the Civil War was judgment on this nation because of the sin of slavery. And I believe that much of the mess we are in right now is a judgment on this country and this church as well. I just do. It's because of what I see in the Bible. Now, it continues. Verse 14 even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. So even if Noah and Daniel and Job, these righteous men were in it, they would be saved by, but no one else. So it's not like Abraham and Sodom, like if there's just one, man, if there's just one, God will spare everybody. He, he says, no, that's not the way this is going to be. He says, instead, their righteousness will save themselves, but no one else. Okay, so again, it gets harder. In fact, now he goes through the types of judgments that he pours out on nations. All right, you ready? Here we go. Verse 15. Aren't you glad you're encouraged this morning by coming to church? All right, here we go. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they ravage it, and it be made desolate so that no one may pass through because of the beasts, even if these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. Verse 17. Or if I bring a sword upon that land and say, let a sword pass through the land, and I cut off from it man and beast, though these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with, it with blood and cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. So he mentions judgments, famine, beasts, swords, and pestilence. He says it is not enough for the nation to just have these righteous people in it that those who are righteous will be saved, but no one else. Even in their own family, even their own kids, each of them will be judged individually for their righteousness. Okay? And then he mentions Jerusalem. And this is probably why the elders came to him to begin with, is to find out what's going to happen to Jerusalem. For thus says the Lord God, how much more will I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. But behold, 
Some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you and you see their ways and their deeds, you will be consoled for the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, for all that I have brought upon it. They will console you when you see their ways and their deeds, and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord God. So he he tells them, listen, because at this point, Jerusalem had been judged once. It was going to be judged again, going to be judged again. And he says, when you see the new people coming, you will recognize that I was right in my judgment. You will look and you'll say, whoa, yep, okay, God, I get that one now. Right? Which, again, this is really very hard stuff. It's a, it's a passage on judgment. It's not necessarily fun to read. It's also very important because even as you back up verse 14, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it. Noah, Daniel, and Job. Job was probably one of the first books written in the Bible. Noah, of course, story is told in Genesis. It's in the Torah. But Daniel was not yet written when Ezekiel wrote this. In fact, Daniel was a contemporary of Ezekiel. He was probably living 100 miles-ish away. Now, he mentions two, Noah and Job. And some people think that Daniel here must have been somebody who had come a long time before someone else. I don't think so. I think he very specifically is mentioning Daniel because Daniel had risen to prominence probably about 10 years before that. Probably Daniel, when I say they're contemporaries, they may have even been, most likely as you look at the ages, they may have been the exact same age, Ezekiel and, and Daniel. And so, um, but Daniel had risen, risen to prominence about 10 years before in Babylon as he did what nobody else could do and interpreted the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, and I'm going to read that real quick. I know we're reading a lot. Um, uh, Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and they stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And so he didn't want them to lie to him, or he didn't fully remember the dream, but he had inklings of it. Who knows? But he refused to tell them what he did have, because he wanted them to not only interpret the dream, he wanted them to tell him what the dream was, and then interpret the dream. So he asks for the impossible. But God spoke to Daniel and gave him the impossible, both the dream and the interpretation, which you find in verse 31. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so, that's not, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole 
earth. This massive statue, Daniel says, actually represents the nation and the nations to come. The part of the civilization that was them was at the top, and then you kind of move through the civilizations that were to follow. And then there is the stone, the eternal stone that was not cut by human hand, not as beautiful or as rich as the gold or the silver or the bronze or the iron, but that stone, it says, would break them all to pieces and then grow to fill everything. And so Daniel gives this interpretation And his fame takes off. And so a hundred miles away or so, Ezekiel and others would know who Daniel was and his righteousness and his role in that nation. And Daniel would say, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness declares the Lord God. Even if Noah, who built the ark, Daniel, who knew the mind of God, and Job, who was faithful through the worst suffering, were in that nation, they would only deliver their own lives by their righteousness. According to Scripture, nations rise, nations fall, nations rage, and... Nations will gather to war against against the Christ. But no nation will live forever. The picture we see in Scripture is that all of the nations, everyone, will fail. And as you see language... And let me be clear, like, we're currently, as a family, or Liz and I, I should say, I, I stop in, she's watching it more than me, are watching the founding of the, America, of the American nation. Like, it's incredible. We watched Napoleon recently, I mentioned to you, and like, just the way the, that America was formed is just unbelievable compared to the spasms other nations had to go through. But nation, no matter which one it is, no nation will live forever. Period. And when you hear language about saving the soul of America, please remember that America has no soul. It has no soul. It has people in it who have souls. And each and every one of those people will be judged individually. And if they do not have righteousness in Jesus Christ, it won't be pretty. And the moment we take some other goal than that, saving those who are around us, seeing the righteousness of Christ imputed to as many of our friends and family and neighbors as possible, and make that the end goal is the moment we step into idolatry. 
America is made up of individuals who need Jesus, all the nations will pass away. The kingdom of God is all that will remain. Things will get hot this year. They always do. So here's my challenge for us. One, pay attention to the language you hear, specifically the religious language you hear and use in politics. Two, do not put politics in a place in your heart that it does not belong. And certainly, do not allow it to become so entrenched that when someone puts their finger on it and says there's a problem here, that you lash out at them. Three, remember that we are all exiles here. The way the Bible talks about all the governments and nations of this world is it refers to them as Babylon. Revelation chapter 18, verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. This is talking about the governments and nations joined together of this world, okay? So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any crafts will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. And after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, to him and to him alone. And any nation which rises up against that in your heart, must be put down. That doesn't mean we don't thank God for the good gifts that he has given us. That doesn't mean we don't participate in politics as we ought in order to seek the good of this nation because there will be judgment. But what I am saying is this, that the moment it steps over the line in your own heart and takes a place that it should not take, is the very moment that you are hanging the stumbling block of your iniquity in front of your eyes and you are blinded to God's glory and you are blinded to the reality of existence. Do not do that, please. And let me say at the end of this series that maybe somewhere through this series, the Holy Spirit has put his finger on something in your life. And this passage in Ezekiel talks about a point where the idol becomes untouchable. The point where 
even though he puts his finger on it and says, this is a problem, that when it has become so entrenched that you are unwilling to deal with it, that you put yourself in a really dangerous spot. So if somewhere during this series, the Holy Spirit put his finger on something in your heart and you did not deal with it, we are moving on to talking about the resurrection power and what it means for us. Deal with it today. There may be a stumbling block on the ground. Don't pick it up and hang it in front of your face. Right? Like the moment you do that, you lose all sense of reality. Don't, don't decide on the thing you love more than him and decide on that more than him. Always, always, when the Holy Spirit touches it, in spite of the fact that it might stir something up and you don't like what happens, deal with it. Deal with it now. Kill it now. There should be no God but him. He and he alone must be Lord of your life. He must be the only one worthy of your praise and your worship. He and he alone must be the savior of sins. He and he alone must be the source of your satisfaction. He and he alone must be the strong tower that you run to. He and he alone must be the source and the summit of your life. And if it's anything else, anything else, deal with it today. Put it behind you today. Because all of these things pass away. All of these things pass away. Except him, except you, and except the people around you.